Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you and uh, amazing. So a couple of stories here that I just want to put on your radar and then I'll pick up your phone calls. The first is that the uh, Dmitry Rogozin, who is the chief of the Russian space corporation Roskomos, just came out and suggested that maybe if we continue supporting Ukraine, they will crash the space station into the United States. Seriously? This is the quote. This was on Raw's story this morning. Still, I believe it's still up. He said, quote, if you block cooperation with us, who will save the International Space Station from an uncontrolled deorbit and fall into the United States or Europe? He tweeted this. Uh, there is also the option of dropping a 500-ton structure, which is the, you know, the space station, on India or China. Do you want to threaten them with such a prospect? The International Space Station does not fly over Russia, so all the risks are yours. Are you ready for them? Whoa. It's, uh, it's weird. It's, the, the world is getting weird. Uh, meanwhile, speaking of weird, down in Florida, HB 7, the so-called Individual Freedom Act, and uh, HB 1557, the so-called Don't Say Gay Law, have, uh, have both passed the, uh, the Florida House of Representatives. Uh, they're going to the Florida Senate. Uh, the uh, so-called HB7 would lead to a whitewashing of black and Native American history. And, of course, the Don't Say Gay bill would be even more problematic. Ben Diamond, who is a, uh, a state legislator representative from uh, St. Petersburg, Florida, said, quote, We are about to start litigating the culture war in this state, and instead of working up here to reduce costs for hardworking Floridians, the cost of groceries, the cost of housing, the cost of health care. We're opening up new causes of action against our businesses and our schools. We shouldn't do that. Nonetheless, the bill passed 74 to 41. Not one Democrat voted for it. And also the don't say gay bill, the opposition that is being led by Carlos Guillermo Smith, a Democrat from Orlando. He is an openly gay legislator in the state of Florida. And he's made a public statement. He said, we call it the don't say gay bill because it prohibits classroom instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity. But this bill goes way beyond the text on the page. 
It sends a terrible message to our youth that there is something so wrong, so inappropriate, so dangerous about this topic that we have to censor it from classroom instruction. He said, this is, this is going to hit an entire community of people. He said, I want to make sure that for those LGBTQ youth in Florida and around the country and in the world who are watching, I want to make sure that you know this. You are loved, you are supported, and we will wake up every single day to fight for you because you are worth fighting for. Amen. Okay, picking up your phone calls here. AJ in La Mesa, California. Hey, AJ, what's on your mind today? Okay, uh, Graham Cluley is a cybersecurity expert in the UK. He just issued a short time ago uh, uh, an article. The headline reads, Conti, C-O-N-T-I, ransomware gang. You attack Russia, we'll hack you back. And let me just briefly put a another plug-in for another cybersecurity expert, this one in uh, the U.S., Brian Krebs. You probably know of him. And that's Krebs, K-R-E-B-S, on security.com, no spaces. Brian used to be with the Washington Post. He had a computer column for many, many years, and then he went off on his own. So, you know, on top of everything else, between the space station coming to a town near you, this is a heads up on something that a lot of people are woefully lacks on and including system administrators because they're specifically warning attacks on infrastructure. Yep. There's a whole chapter in, I'm real familiar with this, AJ. I did a deep dive on into this in, you know, over the course of the last year as I was writing The Hidden History of Big Brother, which will be out next week. And there's a whole chapter on how that works, what happened when Russia went after Ukraine, other countries that and other entities that have been involved in hacking and and how I think that this is frankly how the next war is going to break out. One of the stories I was going to do right after the break, but you just brought it up, so I'll, I'll just share it with you right now. This is from Reuters, and I don't know if you caught this, AJ. The government of Ukraine, I'm just reading from the story, just straight up. The government of Ukraine is asking for volunteers from the country's hacker underground to help protect critical infrastructure and conduct cyber spying missions against Russian troops. They're asking hackers and cybersecurity experts to submit an application via Google Docs, including their specialties such as malware development and professional references. Uh, Yegor Aushev, co-founder of a cybersecurity company in Kiev, wrote the post. He said the volunteers would be divided into defensive and offensive cyber units. The defensive unit would be employed to defend infrastructure such as power plants and water systems. The offensive volunteer unit he said he's organizing would help Ukraine's military conduct digital espionage operations. He said, we have an army inside our country. We need to know what they're doing. So, yeah, cyber war is the next war, in my opinion. I agree, Tom. And a lot of folks are just woefully flummoxed by cybersecurity in general, starting with their own computers. Yeah, blissfully ignorant. That's why I, I started noting that I got a series of text messages this morning asking me to click on a link saying that there's a delivery coming to your house. You need to check it out. And this is, and once you click on a link like that off a text message, they literally grab control of your phone. Yeah, you've had, unless you're running a browser, uh, well, yeah, I, I don't do the smartphone routine, but, but it, you know, folks uh, can run a browser in what's called a sandbox. There's a program called Sandboxy. It's now free for uh, for Windows. Very, very powerful, very 
very useful. But the bottom line is, you know, if you get something that purports to be from your bank or a credit card agency or the federal government, never, ever click on that link. Go yep. to the website directly through your browser. Type in the URL yourself and find out, hey, are they trying to contact me? That's exactly what I did this morning, AJ. Forgive the interruption. I see a break is coming here. But this purported to be from Amazon Marketplace. And so what I did is I went to my Amazon app and clicked my orders. And there's no order from Amazon Marketplace. And you know, <laughs> at that point, I realized, okay, this is a, this is a spear phishing attempt. And you just block the, you know, and delete the messages. But do not click the links. AJ, you're absolutely right. AJ, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Thanks for bringing up Thanks, a really Tom, important topic. Thanks, Tom. Good weekend to you. Yeah, you too. Yeah, have a, gr have a great one. A good and safe one. Thomas in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Thomas, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Uh, I've been meaning to ask oh, you a question for a while. And, and by the way, it's great to see you back on because I haven't been able to get you. My question is, how can you maintain your optimism and see a negativity from the from the, the, the right of the Republican Party with its successes, like getting uh, not passing the Voting Rights Act? Yeah. Help me out here. Sure. I'll give you a couple of thoughts on that. The first is that um, what is the alternative to optimism? You know, it's, it's, it, I mean, you know, walking around all the time freaked out doesn't seem particularly useful to me. A couple of days ago, there was maybe three days ago, I was, I've got a book coming out in a week and a half. And, when, and this happens to me every time I have a book coming out. I start imagining all the horrible reviews and the terrible things people are going to say about it. And I know my own weaknesses of my own books, right? <laughs> I just like, uh, just, and so I'm, I'm walking around hallucinating this horrible future, you know, that's going to happen in a week or two and scaring myself with those hallucinations. And then on top of that, it's like the world is, you know, Ukraine is being invaded and the, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. And, and uh, you know, people could hack our, our checking accounts and everything. And, you know, just all these kinds of anxieties and fears that invade our, our 3 a.m. wake ups and, and sometimes our days. And I, I kind of marinated in that for a little while and uh, for an hour or two, actually, and managed to freak myself out. And then at that point, I just... I, I caught myself, and I remembered this this uh, poster that I used to have on the wall of my uh, room when I was a teenager that said, and I forget whose quote it was, um, that said, a, a, a brave man dies once, but a coward dies a thousand deaths. And and I wrote with a, with a Sharpie underneath that, be here now, which was Ram Dass's advice to us all back in the 60s. Um, and and I, I remembered that, and I thought, Holy cow, here I am, instead of being present, instead of being in this moment, I'm imagining all these horrible things that'll happen and scaring the crap out of myself with them, and I will deal with it when it comes. I'm going to be that brave man who dies once. You know, when bad stuff is going to happen, and it's going to happen to me, I'm going to die eventually, and it'll probably be awful and painful. It typically is for people. But it's not here now, right? It's going to come eventually, and when it does, I'll deal with it. But right now, I'm going to get back to living my life today. Does that help, Thomas? I agree with you. I just, I'm just terribly frustrated by what the right has gotten away with. Oh, well, with regard to the politics, the other thing that informs me is that I believe, and I, I believe this to the bottom of my toes, uh, you know, that, that democracy actually is in our genes. 
You see flocks of birds. Every wing beat is a vote. And if more than 50% of the birds, they've done slow motion photography now and figured this out. If, if uh, more than 50% of the birds move one degree to the right, the whole flock will move one degree to the right. It's the same thing with schools of fish. It's the same thing with swarms of gnats and bees and things. This is in our DNA. It's democracy. They're voting. And it's majority wins, by the way. And I so completely believe that democracy is deeply embedded in us and is the best system that when I see challenges to democracy, like the Republican Party is producing right now, or like you're seeing with uh, President Putin going after President Zelensky and, and in Ukraine and just you know trying to take down Ukraine. When I look at that, I think, you know, this is not going to stand. This is not going to last. Yes, the world has gone through periods literally of thousands of years where there was no functional democracy. But it always comes back. And I think it's widespread enough that the world is not going to tolerate a lack of democracy. I, I get it that there are autocrats rising up. And that also informs my optimism, Thomas. I think this is, you know, nature will eventually win. And this is built into our nature. Thomas, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Rudy in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Rudy, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, you just said something almost brought tears to my eyes. My daughter and I were looking at TV yesterday and we were looking at the Ukraine situation and she looked at me and she said, Dad, why are you so positive? Why do you have such, such an optimistic attitude? And I looked at her. I said, baby, what's the alternative? Exactly. And, you know, it's all a mindset, Tom. I mean, I just refuse to go down that dark road. And when I get to it, then that's when I deal with it. But until then, I'm going to shine my flashlight. That's brilliant, Rudy. So I'm. You know, um, I just want to tell you thank you, Big Brother, and um, have a good week. Man. Okay, thank you, Rudy. I'll say it again, by the way. A coward dies a thousand deaths. A brave man dies but once. That was the old saying. Right. I mean, it's kind of gender specific, but but we right. all get it. You know what it's talking about. Rudy, thank you, and, and, and a tip of the hat to you, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Great talking with you. Cheryl in Milwaukee, Oregon. Hey, Cheryl, what's up? Well, I've got a ray of sunshine for us out there and a good talking point. That's um, 1934 uh, midterm. That's FDR's first midterm. Mm -hmm. he, he picked up eight House seats and eight in the Senate to make supermajorities in both. Yeah, you know why that was, was because he was so successful in passing the New Deal. He, he got so many programs that were working so well. That's why I'm really concerned about this midterm, because Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin blocked Joe Biden from his major accomplishments. And so, you know, it's going to be a hell of a lot tougher for him as a consequence of that. But you're absolutely yeah. right, Cheryl. Yeah, my point on that is that uh, it's been done. If you really want to research it, go back to 1930 and bring it forward. He went from way, way over on the Republican side. When FDR went in, they went up. Mm. And then they went really up in 34. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So if you, if you, if you only have a little bit of a lead... You can't do much, but if you have a supermajority, you can do a lot more. Oh, and he sure did. Cheryl, thank you for that. That's inspiring. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. 
Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from... The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great, by Professor Harvey J. Kay, who's a professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. This is from the introduction, page one. We need to remember. We need to remember what conservatives have never wanted us to remember and what liberals have all too often forgotten. Now, after more than 30 years of subordinating the public good to corporate priorities and private greed, of subjecting ourselves to widening inequality and intensifying insecurities, and of denying our democratic impulses and yearnings, we need to remember. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who rescued the United States from the economic destruction of the Great Depression and defended it against fascism and imperialism in the Second World War. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who not only saved the nation from economic ruin and political oblivion, but also turned it into the strongest and most prosperous country on earth. And most of all, we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who accomplished all that in the face of powerful, conservative, reactionary, and corporate opposition, and despite all their own faults and failings by making America freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. Now, when all they fought for is under siege, and we too find ourselves confronting crises and forces that threaten the nation and all that it stands for. Now we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the most progressive generation in American history. We are the children of the men and women who articulated, fought for, and endowed us with the promise of the four freedoms. On the afternoon of January 6, 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt went up to Capitol Hill to deliver his annual message to Congress. Just weeks earlier, he had defeated the Republican Wendell Wilkie at the polls and won re-election to an unprecedented third term. But Roosevelt now faced a far greater challenge, one even more daunting than those he confronted in his first and second terms. Still stalked by the Great Depression, the United States was also increasingly threatened by the Axis power, Nazi Germany, Fascist Italy, Imperial Japan. And with war already raging East and West, Americans had yet to agree about how to respond to the danger. The president, however, did not falter. He not only proceeded to propose measures to address the emergency, he gave dramatic new meaning to all men are created equal, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We, the people of the United States, a new birth of freedom and government of the people, by the people, and for the people. FDR knew about crises. But he knew as well what Americans could accomplish, even in the darkest of times. Born in 1882, he had grown up privileged, the son of New York Hudson River Gentry. Yet long before becoming president, he had suffered serious defeats and setbacks, 
none more devastating than contracting polio in 1921 at the age of 39. The disease left him permanently unable to stand up or walk without assistance. However, supported by his wife Eleanor and other family members and friends, he had risen above the paralysis to become the most dynamic political figure in the United States. Moreover, his experiences and encounters in the course of doing so had reaffirmed and deepened his already powerful faith and confidence in God, in himself, and in his fellow citizens, all of which had enabled him, in the face of the worst economic and social catastrophe in the nation's history, to defiantly state that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, and then go on to proclaim this generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. Armed with his faith and confidence and propelled by the popular energies that his words and elections elicited, he determinedly pursued the initiatives of relief, recovery, reconstruction, and reform known as the New Deal. Together, president and people severely tested each other, made mistakes and regrettable compromises, and suffered defeats and disappointments. Nevertheless, challenging each other to live up to their finest ideals, Roosevelt and his fellow citizens advanced them further than either had expected or even imagined possible. Confronting fierce conservative reactionary and corporate opposition, they not only rejected authoritarianism, but also redeemed the nation's historic purpose and promise by initiating revolutionary changes in American government and public life and radically extending American freedom, equality, and democracy. They subjected big business to public account and regulation, empowered the federal government to address the needs of working people, mobilized and organized labor unions, fought for their rights, broadened and leveled the we and we the people, established a social security system, expanded the nation's public infrastructure, improved the environment, cultivated the arts, and refashioned popular culture. And while much remained to be done, they imbued themselves with fresh democratic convictions, hopes, and aspirations. Standing before the American people and their assembled representatives that early January day, the president surely believed their rendezvous with destiny had come. He told them straightforwardly that Americans were now confronting a moment unprecedented in the history of the United States. A moment unprecedented because never before had American security been as seriously threatened from without. And he refused to appease those who threatened our nation's safety. The book is The Fight for the Four Freedoms by Harvey King. Martina in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Martina, what's up? Thank you so much for taking my call. Appreciate it. I think Trump is going along with Putin because it's taking the heat off of Trump's troubles right now. Now, I know he loves publicity, good or bad, but he's getting some real bad publicity now. You know, charges and subpoenas and criminal charges and everybody's in trouble there. At least now we got a world war to worry, World War Three to worry about. We don't need to worry about Trump no more. Yeah, you know, I don't. I don't know if yeah. Trump views the troubles in Ukraine, which are inhaling our headlines. You're absolutely right about that. Right. I don't. I don't know if he views that as a plus or a minus. I think that his uh, fealty, if I'm pronouncing the word right, um, to yeah. uh, to Putin and uh, and to Mohammed Bonsal, you know, bin Salman, um, you know, the, the leader of Saudi Arabia and, and to other uh, various other of the autocrats around the world. I mean, he's still talking nice about Kim Jong Un, right? 
Um, I think it's because he wants, that's what he wants to be when he grows up. He wants to be a dictator. And he wanted to be that in the White House, and people kept frustrating him. He kept going through defense secretary after defense secretary and, and, and uh, you know, DOJ head uh, over after, you know, attorney general after attorney general. Um, and and I, I think Trump is living in envy of these guys, frankly. Uh, but, you know, who knows? <laughs> you know, it's really, it's always dangerous when you think that you can figure out what's going on inside the brain of another person. Martina, thank you. Patricia in Cleveland, North Carolina. Hey, Patricia, what's on your mind today? Hey, Mr. Hartman, how are you? First time caller, uh, independent, and I have a lot to say about the uh, Ukraine-Russia stuff. Okay, I'm go not, for it. You, if you could hear my voice, I'm not originally from North Carolina. I'm a Jersey girl. Okay, <laughs> so what's on your mind, Patricia? <laughs> okay, um, I just want to know, um, I'm, we've been knowing what's going on with this wacko with Putin, why didn't we do things earlier with sanctions? Why didn't we do this months ago? Why do we? Why are we always late to the table? My guess is, and I'm I'm not a diplomat, I, and I don't you know play one on on TV as the old saying goes. Uh, but my <laughs> guess is that they didn't want to give Putin a an excuse, essentially, you know, a, a, okay, you've already slapped my hands, so and now I'm going to punch you, kind of thing. Um, I would add, though, that I think that in 2014, when they took Crimea, that was the point at which Obama could have and should have drawn a stronger line in the sand. Although, I, I get it, it was problematic. I mean, Crimea was the one area that probably was, uh, I don't know if it was majority Russian-speaking, but had a huge Russian-speaking population because it was like Florida. It was the retirement place for you know, uh, wealthy Russians. And, and of course, there's a huge military base there, a, you know, deep sea port and, and so a lot of military. So it was, it was far more problematic, but, uh, you know, echoes of the Donbass, I suppose. But, but if we wanted to establish that this is once and for all behavior that will not be tolerated, uh, frankly, I think that would have been the time to do it. And we didn't. We, we woofed on that one or whiffed or whatever the word is. And, and, and I was part of that. I mean, I, I was very, very ambivalent about, you know, going to war over Crimea. And uh, in retrospect now, it looks like that was just the first bite. And, you know, uh, you know, we learned from our experience, just like, you know, the rest of the world learned from, oh, yeah, take the Sudetenland, you know, in 1937 um, or 38, whatever year it was. Well, and, that's, that's what it feels like. It feels like we're back in, the, in, the, in like, in the Hitler days because yeah. it, it, I mean, I'm 62 years old, and I'm, I'm telling you, I've never in my life thought we would be seeing this in yep. 2022. Yep, I agree, Patricia. It is uh, distressing. Um, and the, the big question, of course, you know, this is like, you know, uh, Putin has swallowed this uh, country or is attempting to. Will he be able to hold it down? Is he, you know, is, is it, or is it going to poison him? Is it going to... Is it going to hurt him ultimately? I, and I, the indications that I'm seeing, uh, and particularly the fact that they're they're trying to block Facebook inside Russia, tells me that he's getting blowback that he did not expect, and that and if it's true that an entire Russian battalion just uh, said no, I, we will not fire at our cousins and and former colleagues, uh, the Ukrainians, and we're laying down our arms. If that's true, and again, fog of war, you never know. 
but it could mean that even though this might be a great military victory, in all probability he'll have, you know, decapitated the, 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 the government, as it were, and replaced it with a toady government and uh, claimed control of the entire country by, I think, probably next Monday or Tuesday. Um, but the question then is going to be, can he hold on to it? And I think this is going to be an Afghanistan move. I think this is going to be a real mess for Russia. But, you know, like I said, time will tell. Patricia, thank you for the call. Thanks for sharing your thoughts with us and your experience. Charles in Miami, Florida. Hey, Charles, what's on your mind today? Hey, how you doing, Tom? Um, I wanted to talk about, um, you were saying earlier in the year with COVID that um, I think it was people from Idaho, um, the rural counties, and they were sending, they were overflowing with their, with their um, they, patients. And they were yeah, they were whacking our hospitals here in Portland. Right, and they, and basically what I'm saying is that's a hidden cost to blue states or for bigger cities. You know that's yep. and and Democrats need to point that out. And I would like to to have a, a study on that because um, that's basically letting Republicans and their strict up policies, you know, still still survive in all of the um, the garbage. You know, they, they, all the propaganda they try to say that Democrats can't hold can't take care of the cities, and we're actually using taxpayer money to bail, bail out those red, you know, the small rural red counties. But right. before, I mean, I don't want to get deep into that. I, I don't know, me and you may have a falling out today. Because the more I think about it, I'll be honest with you, I've been listening to you, of course, all week, and I've been getting mad and mad. Every time you, t- you will turn around and say, well, um, Joe Biden and, and the West can't really say anything to Putin because of what we, you know, how we went into Iraq, it's basically you're saying that. Well, hang you know, on just a second, Charles. I have never said that we can't say anything. I, what I have said is that Blinken had to acknowledge this. We have to acknowledge that, that we lied to the world. But that doesn't mean that we, not, that we can't tell the truth now. That doesn't mean that we can't take action now. We must. Okay, okay, good. But, but my thing is this. When you say we, don't include the Democrats. Because I can remember, plain and simple, from the time George Bush was running for president, we was opposed to him. We knew what he wanted to do. He wanted to go into Iraq, and we opposed, we tried, we opposed him in every end. I can remember people in Asia. I can remember South America. And even the, these, these United States, people was marching and saying, don't go to war. It's the Republicans. And, and you can be as nice and, and calm as you want to be when you explain America, but you have to put the distinction in right now. These people are the devil. They're nothing close to devils on earth, and they're trying to make life miserable for all of us. And now they've gone to the point where they don't feel like they, um, the, the democracy is going to work for them because they can't get over doing the same things they've been doing to us for years. So now guess what? They want, they want everything. They want to take control and, and basically by gunpoint because there's no way that we can call this a democracy and they have like, what, six um, Supreme Court judges and we only have three? That is not a democracy. If, if, it was, if, the, world, if the world was reversed, They'd be screaming bloody murder right now, and they would be explaining to you, you cannot have parity if, you know, if the court is so lopsided. And for me, I can't understand why the Democrats, why Joe Biden won't tell the court, listen, I'm going to put some more Supreme Court judges on there. But the only reason why I think he can't do that is because it's like a rigged game. The, these corporate people, they own both the Democrats and the Republicans. So uh, I'm like, don't lump us in with them. We have to make that distinction, especially right now, because these people, you saw what happened on January 6th, and they want the same thing to happen here that, that, um, that um, 
Putin is doing in the Donbass. Great rant, Charles. We are not in disagreement at all. I completely agree with everything you said. I was, I was out there on the front lines in 2003. Mark Crispin Miller and I gave multiple speeches. Uh, Paul, oh, I'm, I'm forgetting his last name. Uh, Paul, anyhow, he, uh, he's another author. He and I, I mean, we spoke to thousands of people in, in a huge church in Seattle in 2003, the, the people who were out on the streets, I, I spoke in, in a, a, a massive church in, down in Greenwich Village in New York City. Um, all of this trying to stop the war in Iraq. I wrote a book about the war in Iraq. It's called We the People. It's an it's a, a, a illustrated book. It's out of print now, but you, know, you can still find copies floating around. That was all about how Bush and Cheney were, were setting us up for a future of fascism with the war in Iraq. You're absolutely right. Democrats were opposed to it. The world was opposed to it. Uh, when I say we, I'm speaking of the United States. I'm, I'm definitely not talking about the Democratic Party. And uh, Charles, thank you for correcting me on that. No problem. Are we, good? are we good? Yeah, we always are. You okay. know, um, I, I can't. I can't see how we can't get you more mainstream than you are now. Okay. So we, we, this corporate media, we have to. Listen, we're we we're have doing to our best. We're doing our best. Yeah, and you're and you're listening to me on Sirius XM, which is about as big as it gets. So, Charles, Charles, remember, I gotta last, remember, remember last year you were saying that if Donald Trump becomes president, you don't know if you may become you may they may lock you up. And that's the same thing with us, too, to listen to you. I remember you were saying last year, you were saying, if Donald Trump becomes president, I don't know if they may come for me. You were talking about the fascists. And I thought to myself, they could be coming for the rest of us as well. Yep. So we're all in this fight together, but we need to make that distinction because these people are terrorists, they are murderers, and they are liars. And I'm sick of them. Yep. I'm with you. I'm with you. A very, very, very (laughs) great rant. Great rant. Charles, thank you. Uh, Y'all did me. Brilliant. We'll be right back. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
And welcome back, Larry in Napa, California. Hey, Larry, what's on your mind today? Hey, great speaking with you. Long time, long time uh, listener. Thank you. I wanted to mention a an email I got from Robert Reich. I might be destroying his name. I'm, I apologize. Reich the is how he pronounces it. All okay, soft. thank you. And he basically goes through eight sobering realities why Putin's uh, about Putin's invasion. I read it this and morning. I subscribed one, to his I've never heard anyone else mention before, and that's why I wanted to bring it up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in 2014, when we imposed sanctions after Crimea incident, uh, it didn't really work. And he's talking about now. He thinks it's even less effect because the rise of cryptocurrencies, you know, other digital assets. Mm-hmm. They can bypass bank transfers, and that's the control point for sanctions. So if they can put their money in cryptocurrencies, which I am positive they are doing, especially those who are a little, um, let's say, not on the level, um, there's so much going on in cryptocurrencies right now. I am absolutely sure that's where they have a lot of their money. And that's an interesting, interesting point, Larry. Do you think that that might be, you know, the, the, the demand from Russia in anticipation of these kinds of sanctions might be what drove the price of cryptocurrencies, you know, up into the stratosphere there for a while and perhaps an attempt absolutely to not. manipulate prices so that they could acquire a whole bunch more on the cheap uh, led to that crash that happened. What was it about a month or two ago? Yep. Makes perfect sense. Makes absolutely perfect sense. Larry, thank you. That's, uh, you know, another great data point for us uh, all to consider. Thank you. Rennie, watch us on YouTube in Reno, Nevada. Hey, Rennie, what's up? Hey, Tom. One of your callers last week said that she was a graduate of Tom Hartman University. I'm a perpetual student of the Tom Hartman University. I'm not (laughs) quite that pretentious, uh, but thank you. Well, I'm perpetual, you know, always yeah, learning, and I learned so much from you because you're just a, a you're a, a historian, very valuable. So, Rennie from Reno is actually Rennie from New York and Florida, mm-hmm. and when I was in college, I learned from my Cuban uh, my Cuban friends that I would go into their home, and it was the first time I learned about a ham radio. So, the people that were Cubans here. On this land, we're talking to Cubans on the island of Cuba, Mm -hmm. and I'd like your callers to think about getting a ham radio license, and there's a course that teaches it for free. I'm following up on all your cybersecurity people that have called in with websites. Mm -hmm. This one's called Mm hamexam.org. It's free. I don't know the difference between a watt, an amp, and a volt, but I used it and I passed the test. Uh-huh. And cell phone, ra- uh, ham radio towers do not use cell phone towers, right. as I understand it's, it's it. It's a whole different so frequency. So this way, if there's, yeah. Yeah. if there's a communication breakdown and people's cell phones go down, they can use their ham radio license. Yeah, I would. Uh, their, I, I would. Ham ra- their ham radio. And you can build your own Faraday box with just metal and cardboard board to protect it in the event that there is some kind of uh, um, EMF, yeah. electromagnetic field. Rennie, I have to run, but I, I, I love it. I, I'm so glad you brought this up. I got my ham license when I was 13 years old, W-A-A-M-W-L, uh, ended up with my general ticket. Uh, it has expired now, and I probably should go back to it. The American Radio Relay League, the A-R-R-L, is kind of the premier organization in that space. But uh, hamexam.org, I'll check it out. Rennie, thank you. 
Okay, back to picking up your phone calls. Uh, Robert in Forest Grove, Oregon. Hey, Robert, what's up? Hi, Tom. Hey. I called about four weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And remember Reagan's adage, government is not the solution, government is the problem? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I said, well, the preamble to the Constitution is a good explanation of the role of our government. There are seven elements, and you said, get me a bumper sticker. Okay, yeah, I remember. Okay, I got the bumper sticker. Okay, what's the bumper sticker? The bumper sticker is, democracy is the solution. I love it. I love it. That's brilliant. Robert, thank you. Democracy is the solution. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. That's a really good one. Arthur in Bainbridge Island, Washington. Hey, Arthur, what's on your mind today? Yeah, hey, Tom. How come the uh, Russian oligarchs haven't been sanctioned before now? Well, some of them were after the Mueller report came out. And and some of them were after the 2014 Crimean annexation. But if there's justification for sanctioning the ones yesterday, wasn't there justification before this? It's not as though they were involved in troop movements or anything like that, but... I think that well, I, I think Arthur, then they just friends of Putin. Yeah, I, I don't think it's illegal to be an oligarch in another country. I mean, if it was, uh, France might declare Jeff Bezos off limits. I mean, we've got oligarchs here in the United States. I get that. I'm just wondering what the justification is for sanctioning them and why we didn't sanction them before. Oh well, the justification is they're trying to hurt. Uh, President Putin. I mean, you know, it's just unambiguous. They're they're essentially coming right out and saying it. And he is, his political base of support are the oligarchs in Russia with whom he has this symbiotic relationship. They get richer because he allows them to. He allows them to because as they get richer, presumably they're helping him get richer. And you have to assume that in some way he thinks that what they're doing is of some benefit to his country, to Russia. I mean, it's the same reason that we tolerate oligarchs in the United States. Although I would argue that if, you know, before Reagan, there were no billionaires in the United States. We've got them because, you know, he did away with the top 74% tax bracket. I would, I would argue that here in the United States, we should be uh, equally wary about oligarchs. But um, I, I, I unless, I unless I'm misunderstanding your question. Or there should be tolerated. I'm but sorry? It's just... It's just that if they're bad actors and they're involved in illegal activities, then they should have been sanctioned before that. And the oligarchs here, same thing. Well, I'm not sure that they're being sanctioned because what they're doing is illegal. They're being sanctioned because they're friends of Putin and and, and the United States is trying to increase the pressure on him, which is arguably a really, really weak reason to do sanctions. So, I, I mean, if it was an oligarch who was specifically involved in the, in the weapons business, uh, you know, in Ukraine or running a private army, you know, the, the Russian version of Eric Prince or something like that, maybe. But uh, it, it seems to me like the guys that they're going after, they're just going after because these guys are affiliated with Vladimir Putin. Well... I think we all know they're involved in illegal activities and same thing here. You know, you can call it sketchy or, you know, activities or whatever. But that, you know, they're, in that case, I would argue that they're entitled to due process at the very least. 
you know, are challenging mm -hmm. the rules of the game at some level. I mean, the, 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 the rules of the game, this is, you know, our, our rules were changed both by the, the, the Reagan administration dropping the top tax rate and then the Supreme Court saying that, yes, if you're rich enough, you may own your own pet politician. Those are the things that have brought us to where we are. Yeah, that's uh, Arthur, the big problem, um, double, the double standard. That, yeah, there you, you go. Know. Arthur, I got to run, but thank you for the call. I'll tell you all about Donald Trump and Vindman after this, and also an embarrassment in Michigan for the trucker convoy. Stick around. Welcome back. A couple of, just a, just a little... Let me tell you about this. Donald Trump Jr. has been officially served with court papers. This is a lawsuit that Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, now retired, has filed against him, Rudy Giuliani, Dan Scavino, the former White House Deputy Chief of Staff, and uh, Julia Hahn, who is a former official in the Trump White House. And what Vindman is charging is that he was the victim of witness intimidation and whistleblower retaliation. He, Vindman, of course, was the one who was on the phone call when Donald Trump threatened the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, if he refused to come out and say that Joe Biden was dirty, was up to no good in Ukraine. And of course, Zelensky said, we have no proof of that. We have no evidence of that. I'm not going to go out and say that. You know, I'm not going to do your dirty work. And so what Trump did was he said, OK, well, you've got a request into our Pentagon for $400 million worth of military supplies. I believe it was million. I'm pretty sure it was million. And, uh, you know, I know we told you that we were going to send you this stuff, but tough luck, Charlie. And for the next couple of years, I mean, this is what Trump got impeached for the first time. For the next couple of years, we did not send any military aid to Ukraine at all. You know, another instance of Donald Trump kowtowing to, uh, to Russia to, and the Russian oligarchs who have been presumably or allegedly laundering money through his uh, real estate operations. So there's that, number one. Number two... There was supposed to be the Lansing Freedom Convoy in my old hometown, Lansing, Michigan. This was, you know, an imitation of the trucker thing in, uh, up in Canada. And they were going to do it to, quote, demand a voter-run audit and canvas and for police to arrest and charge all criminals in government, media, and medicine. Right. And they were sure that hundreds of people are going to show up and we're going to shut down Lansing. Ten people showed up for the event. Now, this event had been promoted by all three of the Republicans running for the, the governorship uh, the, in, the, in the primary. It had been promoted by the former uh, Detroit uh, chief of police, James Craig, uh, a Republican running for governor. It had been supported by dozens of Republican state legislators and state senators, you know, all over the place. And uh, ten people showed up. So, anyhow, uh, picking up your phone calls here. Eileen in Beverly Hills, California. Hey, Eileen, what's on your mind today? Okay, Tom, I'm working with Harvey Wasserman, who you know is a world-renowned nuke expert, has been working on that, on nuclear issues since 1960. And he's reporting that there are 15 nuclear reactors in the Ukraine at four different sites. 
They're old. They were built during the Soviet era. They're very badly managed. And there could be, if hit or even close by, a nuclear disaster or nuclear fallout. A new, a new Chernobyl. Yeah, I got the newsletter this morning from, or maybe, maybe I guess it was yesterday, actually, from uh, Beyond, yeah. Beyond Nuclear, and uh, that was their top story as well. So that's... that's uh, it's in the Hill today. It's yeah. on the wire service. Yeah, it's, it's going around. It, it is a concern. I mean, the, the Chernobyl was not the only Chernobyl uh, design, anyway, and, and uh, these things are very, very vulnerable. Um, right. and, and Chernobyl war. was one. This is 15. Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. Eileen, thank you. Thank you. Nice to hear from you. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome back. Zeke in Portland. Hey, Zeke, what's up? Uh, yeah, Tom, I just wanted to bird dog something for you, if I might. I read a piece uh, just in the last couple of days by uh, Tom Nichols in The Atlantic. And he did a deep dive into the speech that Putin gave, I think it was on Monday. Right. And he said that uh, what he observed with Putin was a lot of deep sighing and what he called deadened affect. And he, he took away from this that this guy is basically bonkers, crazy. And, and I, do, I dovetail that info, I fold into that info what I got from Michael McFall, the former ambassador, U.S. ambassador, now, now teaching at Stanford. And McFall says that what you've got going here is that Putin is holed up in a secure building, no email, no cell phones, they can't be spied on, with about two dozen yes-men. And uh, he just basically disconnected from, from reality. And I, I read that article too, Zeke, and and uh, mm -hmm. and 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 I uh, putting two and two together. As I recall, this was not mentioned in the article, but uh, I don't know if you've noticed the kind of tables that Putin is sitting at with his advisors. They're like 10, 15 feet away from him, and you'll mm -hmm. recall there yeah. was there was a moment when Hitler's closest advisors, uh, one of them smuggled a bomb in, put it under the table, and tried to blow up Hitler. And nearly mm -hmm. did. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, blew right. up the room and killed a couple of people. Hitler made it made out OK on that. And then they, of course, tortured him to death for fun. Um, I'm mm -hmm. wondering right. if Putin has reached the point where he feels like he can't even trust the people who are close to him. Uh, initially, when I saw it, I thought, OK, he's doing that because of covid. He's he, you know, he doesn't want to get covid. And so anybody he talks to is going to have to sit 20 feet away from him. But, you know, there are other ways around that. I mean, you, you just put a HEPA filter in the room. Um, uh, I mean, you don't have to sit three three inches from somebody. You can sit six feet from yeah. somebody, and it doesn't look so weird. But twenty feet away, twenty feet away is not a distance that would protect you from COVID. It's a distance that would protect you from a suicide vest. And uh, yeah. so I wondered yeah. if he's reaching the point, that, which is was clearly the point that 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 Hitler had reached in his last days. Uh, at least, uh, you know, uh, according to Armin Lehman, my, my friend uh, who's now passed away, 
who was the 16-year-old courier who brought Hitler the information that the war was lost and was standing outside the door when Hitler committed suicide. Um, Armin said he was bonkers at that point. He was, he was terrified of everybody. He was convinced everybody was out to get him. He couldn't trust anybody. Uh, everybody had failed him. Everybody had let him down. Everybody was trying to kill him. And I wondered, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's always dangerous to speculate about the mental health of international leaders or anybody else for that matter. But if he is, as this article suggested, bonkers, that throws a significant wrench into any effort to rationally deal with uh, Russia. I hope it's not the case. I really do. I, you know, I, and, and sometimes lack of affect is just the result of somebody reading a script or, or saying something that's very well rehearsed. So it's hard to say. It's hard to say. Zeke, I got well, uh, You have a final word? Yeah, I just wanted to say, according to Malcolm Nance, he has 75% of his army poised there. And I think he's about to walk into a situation that could make Afghanistan look like a tea party. I, I think that there's going to be right. a major, major resistance in, in Ukraine. And I, I think you're I, absolutely right. It's what I wrote about on uh, HartmanReport.com. Thanks, Zeke. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones by Nina Khrushcheva and Jeffrey Taylor. This is from the introduction titled In Putin's Footsteps. On New Year's Eve 1999, journalists in the Russian president's press pool had a feeling that things were going to change. They were right. The feeble and aging Boris Yeltsin, who could barely board a plane or stand for a 15-minute press conference, was about to deliver his end-of-the-year address in which he resigned and ceded power to his prime minister and hand-picked successor, Vladimir Putin. Once head of the Federal Security Service, the FSB, the post-communist democratic version of the dreaded KGB, Putin was indeed an unusual choice, having served as the head of the government for only a few months. But the 48-year-old ex-spy, who had become the youngest Kremlin leader since the Soviet Union's founders, Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin, had a quiet energy that seemed boundless, as boundless as the geographic expanses contained within Russia's 11, yes, 11 time zones. After taking over from Yeltsin as acting president on the first day of the new millennium, and after winning by a landslide presidential elections three months later, Putin, in the year to come, held over a dozen press conferences and traveled to almost two dozen countries and at least a quarter of Russia's 89 regions, which are spread out over 11 time zones. Altogether, he was seen in public and on television more often than Yeltsin during most of his eight-year presidency. Suddenly, the press had something to report. The news stories were no longer those of Yeltsin's Russia, which was perceived both at home and abroad as weak, insignificant, and a corrupt boogeyman reeling from his Cold War defeat. These were stories of an enigmatic young technocrat tirelessly crisscrossing the country and meeting with workers, farmers, and cultural figures, attending theater galas and factory openings. All that uplifting travel, Russia was starving for the Kremlin's attention, connected Putin to ordinary people and gave him the idea of delivering a rousing New Year's Eve televised address to the nation. Standing before the Kremlin's Spassky Tower just before the giant bells rang in the year 2001, under starry winter skies in front of a large snow-dusted Christmas tree, he pledged to counter the negativity of the post-Soviet decade and set the country on a new positive course. And this he did. In his address, the ardent young leader looked both charming and in charge when he spoke of Russia's great future, heroic past, and enduring spirit. Putin had often appeared a reserved technocrat, but soon he would demonstrate a talent for finding opportunities to impress the heartland. 
He knew the best way to get to people's hearts, showing them that his priority was returning Russia to the world stage as a major power of formidable dimensions. Originally, he had an even bolder plan for his New Year's address, and he had run it by journalists in his press pool during one of his trips around Russia. Without a hint of doubt in his voice, Putin told them that, quote, Russia is an enormous country, a great country. We need to remember that our strength is our size. What if I were to travel through Russia's limitless land in one night through all of its 11 time zones, stopping in each one at midnight local time to record a New Year's message to show our nation's greatness, our richness, the diversity of our mother Russia, our unity, and our worth? Even though Russia's time zones are exaggerated in number, there should be only seven, according to generally accepted geographic markers of Greenwich Mean Time. It's a 24-hour cycle, also called UTC. Maintaining them is not only a political matter, it is reflective of the national identity, state power, and international influence. Russia has 11 time zones more than any other country, and that, as Russians would have it, bespeaks its status in a way no one can deny. Often the time that appears on a nation's iconic clock, Big Ben in the United Kingdom, for example, or those daunting dials on the Spassky Tower in Russia's case, is a subtle way of representing where power lies. In Russia, every time zone is first referred to in relation to MSK, Moscow Standard Time, with UTC only following. Moreover, many countries don't even adhere to the 24-hour GMT UTC's neat meridians. China's huge landmass should straddle five different time zones, yet operates according to just one. Inhabitants of western China, if they follow their clocks, have dark mornings and light evenings. But nobody doubts that only the Beijing time matters. When Hugo Chavez became president of Venezuela in 1999, he created a new time zone that would set Venezuela 30 minutes apart from neighboring countries. That was his way of letting the world know that Venezuela was striking out on its own. But Putin's idea of showcasing his country's temporal and geographic diversity in just one night was certainly unique, and it accorded with his plans to return Russia to its lost great power status. It also sprung from what Putin knew Russians expect of their leader, something close to godlike status. Keen on creating a leader's image steeped in tradition, history, and mythology often associated with the uniqueness of the Russian soul, spiritual endurance, persevering patience, belief in miracles, and material sacrifice. He wanted to be seen as the dead morose, the granddad Frost, the Russian Santa Claus, bearing gifts of renewed national importance and self-confidence. Capitalizing on Russia's size, 6,000 miles from east to west, Putin hoped to begin restoring his country's grandeur, once czarist, then Soviet, and now Russian. The idea was bold and beautiful, but unfortunately unrealizable. The book In Putin's Footsteps by Nina Khrushcheva and Jeffrey Taylor. Dane in Vancouver, Washington. Hey, Dane, what's on your mind today? Very good. I'm trying to lighten you up a little bit. I okay. mean, you've got just to give a uh, something on this so that yeah, I know you real well, but you don't know me at all. And uh, I was in high school when you were born. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So anyway, so you got I'm a lifetime of experience here, Dane. You're you're one of our well, wise I've elders. Heard, I've learned so much from you; it's unbelievable. But anyway. I wanted to talk about the jet stream. You and I ha seem to have a different understanding of the jet stream. I think of the jet stream as being a barometer. And, and it, I don't think, to me, it doesn't affect anything except planes that get in it and use it to uh, transport themselves to get it, you know. But you don't feel that way, do you? 
No, I, my understanding of the jet stream is that it guides the air masses below it. And when you like when you see the jet stream, you know, drool down all the way down to Texas, you, you see very different air masses on either side of it. Um, and and the, the air underneath it, you know, back where it loops back up that you get this, uh, you know, these these domes of high pressure. I mean, that's what happened. That's why we had one hundred and sixteen degree temperatures for three days here in in, uh, in Oregon. Is the jet stream okay. basically stalled? I okay. I, I don't disagree with that. What I'm saying is, though, that the jet stream is like to me a barometer. It's showing that either the cold air coming from the north is stronger than the uh, south air coming from the equator, or vice versa, and that's the way the jet stream goes. I'm all I'm saying oh, is. Oh, you're right. I, I think. Well, the, the thing that creates the jet stream is the temperature differential between Arctic air and mid latitude air. That's what right, that's right. what literally holds it in place. And when that temperature differential starts changing from the norm and it's changing rapidly because the Arctic is warming six times faster than the than the equator. When that when that starts changing from the norm, the behavior of the jet stream, the integrity of the walls, as it were, of the jet stream starts to break down. OK, fine. OK, we agree on that. I, yeah. I didn't I didn't quite understand. I always got the feeling when you said the jet stream was doing this or the jet stream was doing that. You know, I got to. I realize that the jet stream is being manipulated. You might say by the north and south winds that that uh, come together at that particular point. Yeah. No, but One you're, other little thing you're I right. It's, to the say, but, it's the temperature differential, and that's also a pressure differential. Your other thing, right. Dan, real quick. And, and being the rotating of the Earth, that adds to it too, don't yep. you think? Yeah, there, you know, okay. there's a whole lot of Coriolis effect there. Yes. Okay, only one little thing I'm going to say, and then I'll hang up, and that is uh, I started listening to you when you were talking about your gay ducks. Oh, yeah, that was like a decade ago when, <laughs> when we lived on the Willamette. We had right. uh, Adam welcome, and Steve. We had, we, had a gay, we had two gay mallards. Right. Well, good. I wanted to hear you laugh. That was the biggest thing I was after here well, thank today. You, so, so don't get carried away and have a fantastic weekend, you and the wife both, okay? Okay, thank you, Dana. And the same to you. I, I hope you and your family uh, are doing well and, and you have a great weekend. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.